Heavenly Father, we give you our, our praise this morning and our thanksgiving as you are as you are holy, righteous, and good. And so is your your word. And so we are so thankful this morning that we get to open your word and learn more about, about your plan of salvation that finds fulfillment in your Son. And so as we open up again in your Old Testament, we pray that you would make plain to us the, the meaning you intend in the narratives you've placed in the Old Testament. Give us greater understanding. Give us a posture of submission unto your word. And we do ask that you would, you would change us and grow us into the image of your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So today we're, we're going to continue our study through the Old Testament by going through the book, Dominion and Dynasty, by Stephen Dempster. I think we're on chapter 4, or five, somewhere in the middle. I've kind of just... Yeah, we're, we're, we're just going our, making our way through um, the pages. Um, and so today we're going to be working through, hopefully, Lord willing, the books of Samuel and Kings. I don't think we'll finish Kings, but we are going to start in Samuel. Which remember, Samuel's broken up to, into 1st and 2nd Samuel in our Bibles. But it was originally one book. Um, and it's obviously one story. It's one it's one book by one author. And really the central theological theme of this book is quite simple. It's kingship. Kingship. And that relates directly to the theme we've been tracing throughout this series of, of dynasty. So, so Dempster begins his study of Samuel by looking at the very beginning and the very end of the book. Well, not really the very beginning, but the, the second chapter and then the 24th chapter of 2 Samuel. Um, and he calls these the, the textual boundaries of the book. The textual boundaries of the book, or, or we could just think of them as the bookends of the book of Samuel. And, and Dempster's argument is really that we can gain something pretty significant about the meaning and structure of the book by analyzing these textual boundaries. So, Judges ends at the location of, of Shiloh with a description of moral and spiritual anarchy, which we, we chronicled a couple weeks ago. And it is here where the book of Samuel begins, where a uh, a certain man with his two wives and his family are making their, their annual pilgrimage to Shiloh to celebrate one of the feasts where, where they worshipped and sacrificed to the Lord. And this is important to note because it's in Shiloh where, where the tabernacle worship and, and sacrifice to Yahweh occurs. And, and later in chapter 1, we find one of his wives, Hannah, articulating a a pretty desperate prayer as she, as she longs for a child. Hannah is barren, obviously, therefore she, she can't have a child. This puts her, her in line of barren women that we've, we've seen so far right in the Old Testament, which should indicate to us this, this lady's important. Um, but Hannah is, is granted a child 
through this prayer, who will be Samuel. And Dempster makes this, the point that, that Samuel will then become a, uh, a kingmaker, so to speak, in Israel. He's going to be the, a prophet that anoints kingship, which is a direct answer not just to, to Hannah's prayer of vowing to, to dedicate the child to the Lord's service, but also the, the refrain that we saw at the end of Judges over and over again, that there was no king in Israel during that time, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so Dempster points out that this, this prayer from Hannah is then the, the, the means God uses to bring a king to his people. And at the very end of Samuel, so 2 Samuel 24, there, there is another desperate prayer, but this time it's from that very king of Israel, petitioning God to save a city from the consequences of, of his failure, of his sin. And so God answers his prayer, and David, the king, purchases the land that will one day be the future site of the temple where the presence of God will, will dwell and sacrifice and, and worship will be held. So Dempster's pointing this out because he's, he's arguing that the beginning and ending of Samuel indicate to the reader a, a geograph, geographical shift from, from worship that the, from the temporary site of the tabernacle to worship at what will become the permanent site at the temple in Jerusalem. And there's, there's also a genealogical significance in the beginning and ending of the book as the fact that there is now a, a king in Israel, a possible leader who can give Israel rest and lead them to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, right? what, what they were apparently missing in the book of Judges. But there's another connection that Dempster points out, and many, many other biblical theologians have made this connection in the book of Samuel, and that is that Hannah and David also echo each other in, in the meaning, right, in the narrative, in their songs of thanksgiving, in their songs of thanksgiving. So the song of Hannah, you can find in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and the song of David, um, I can't remember what it's typically called, but it's a, it's a song of David in, in 2 Samuel 22, can serve as other brackets that, that to outline the narrative and where, where connection points are intended by the author to convey meaning and structure in the book. And both of these songs of praise focus on a messianic king. So Hannah's prayer for a child is fulfilled, and so right she, she dedicates the boy Samuel to the sanctuary. She sings a song, a song of thanksgiving, which we find in 1 Samuel um, 2. And I'm going to read a couple of verses from this just so you can see the, the kind of dynastic kingly themes. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. Of First Samuel two, it reads, "He, that's the Lord, will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail." 
The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So Dempster's interpretation of these verses is that Hannah's song is looking to a future for the, for the overthrow of a wicked, the wicked dominion that will be replaced by a just king, a Messiah, who will bring justice to the ends of the earth. And in 2 Samuel 22, we find David's song of thanksgiving after he had been delivered from his enemies. And in his song of thanksgiving, David looks back and he sees how God has delivered him, right? He's delivered him from all of his enemies, recounting the the faithfulness of God to him. And you can see in, in verses 39 through 41... The idea that we've seen throughout the Old Testament that that conveys dominion, that David destroyed his enemies and they were put under his feet. We we saw this account with the the Canaanite kings back in the book of Joshua. They, They were put under the feet of the Israelites. And in verse 51, the, the last verse in the song, we see a pledge of a future in which God will magnify his salvation to his king and extend covenant loyalty to his Messiah, so to David and David's offspring forever. So this is a, a, a very important verse in, in sort of the big story of the whole Bible. We can see the, the covenantal loyalty in in the language of steadfast love so that the Lord will show his, his steadfast love to his anointed, a, a covenant love, which is kind of a, a re-emphasis of the covenant that, that God is going to make with David that we're going to see in 2 Samuel 7. And as Hannah sang in her song, there's, there's a messianic king that will bring justice to the ends of the earth. And from David's song, we know that it will be from his line, from his seed, from his offspring. So notice, right, the, the obvious themes present in these songs, themes of dominion, this time not just of land, not just of the promised land, but of the entire earth and, and the theme of dynasty, of a messianic king from the line of David. So I think there's a, a, a wonderful connection that the author has written um, and placed these two songs as sort of the, the, the bookends of the book of Samuel, that relate to us a lot of information, a lot of important meaning and structure for the book. So Dempster's really just arguing that understanding Hannah and David and their songs of praise are crucial for the understanding of the contents of the book. And I think that's entirely right. So Hannah's song in particular, we're going to go back to the beginning here, serves or, or functions as a, a hermeneutical bridge for previous and, and subsequent narratives in the storyline. So kind of a, a, a lens of how we should interpret the rest of the book of Samuel. Dempster writes, Hannah's song 
has significance not only for its local context, but also for the larger context of the book and for the previous and succeeding books. So pretty large claim um, to, to make of just this one little prayer in the Song of Hannah, but I think it's, it's pretty ac- accurate. Um, and the reason this song is so important is because one of the major themes we see in the song and prayer, which is also a theme that is going to be present throughout the book of Samuel, and that's the theme of kind of the reversal of human expectations. The reversal of human expectation. Dempster writes, The strong are defeated in battle, and the weak succeed. The well-fed starve, and the starving dine. The fertile woman loses her children, and the barren woman gets a house full of kids. And it's clear, as we read, that, the, that these reversals of these human expectations are the product of the Lord, of Yahweh alone who has all power, who who is mighty. He alone buries and resurrects. He alone enriches and impoverishes. And the result of all these reversals, which we've already read at the end of the song, is that there will be a new world order, so to speak, not based on on human strength, not based on human ingenuity or, or human political ability, but on divine power alone. So these stories illustrate God's power in doing essentially what he wants to do in establishing his kingdom. Yahweh will impart power on his Messiah to rule the world. And we get sort of a glimpse of that rule in the books of Samuel and Kings. So then when when we observe the contents of Samuel, we're going to see these themes come up again and again. And we're going to move kind of forward in the narrative, 1 Samuel 8, where we see the oppressed Israelites, right? They long for deliverance from the Philistines. And they believe that if they had a king, just like all the other nations had, then they would be saved. They would kind of solve their issues. And the Lord views this request as a rejection of his divine rule over them. But there does seem to be a tension here that I think we should note as readers because kingship kingship has represented hope in previous narratives, in the book of Judges, and even in Hannah's song that we saw. So what gives here? Is a king for Israel a good or bad thing? It seems like we're getting two answers. And I think the key here to this question can be found back in, if we think back to Deuteronomy 17, where Moses gave the law, the legislation, for an Israelite king. And if you remember back there, the the point of an Israelite king was to bring moral reform to the people by being a model citizen of obedience to Yahweh, to to being completely submissive to the law of God, having the law of God memorized on his own heart. So in that sense, the Israelite kingship would be a transformed kingship, not a kingship like the other nations. And it is this kingship, this transformed kingship, which is envisioned as the the human embodiment of the rule of the Lord, right? That 
It's that type of kingship that represents the hope of a king in Judges and in Hannah's song. But that type of kingship is not what the Israelite people want in 1 Samuel 8. What the Israelites desire is the type of king that will give them worldly liberation and and worldly power. And that is a rejection of Yahweh, who has actually sufficiently provided for them and, and delivered them from their enemies all throughout their history. So I think the answer to the tension here, right, right, if Israelite desire for kingship is good or bad, needs to take into consideration the fact that the Israelites were desiring for a king for the wrong reasons, or you could even say for the wrong type of king, not ones, not one that they have, that they have clearly described for them in their law in Deuteronomy. They didn't want the transformative kingship outline in Deuteronomy 17. And so they did want, just to reiterate, they did want a king like the rest of the nations to help them with their their earthly plight and to kind of give them political and military victory from their oppression, which, as it turns out, is an affront to God because God has provided military victory and peace for Israelites throughout their history. So I need a water break. So any questions or comments before moving on? Well, I think that those, by desiring that would reject what God says, which they know because they know the law. Yeah, I think that's right. Whether conscious or unconscious, it's bad and <laughs> gets punished by the Lord. Um, so now, as, as the narrative moves on in, in Samuel, we see that the Israelites get the king that they desire, um, and it is a massive disaster. They get a king whose distinguishing mark amidst the people is his tall height. He, he's, impress, he's an impressive man by earthly standards. So this man is Saul, who he's described again as a foot taller than every man in Israel, and immediately, I think we should recognize when, we, when, when reading this, that Saul is not the king transformed by the, the Deuteronomic legislation that we've seen so far um, in Deuteronomy. Saul is not a person marked off by his obedience to the Torah and having the law of God on his heart. But he's known for his physical stature, right? That should indicate to us Something's wrong here. This is not the king that is good. Saul was picked because of impressiveness from human perception, from human expectations. And Dempster writes then that it's hardly surprising that that Saul's reign is pretty much doomed from the outset. Saul embodies a type of kingship that stands in opposition to the Lord and his law. And so right after... Maybe not right after, but but soon after in the story, when Saul is installed as king, he he pretty much immediately sins against the Lord, and and Yahweh rejects him. He rejects him as king. And we see Saul fail in 1 Samuel 15. He fails to obey the command of God to apply the ban to the 
Amalekites, which was a, a practice that we saw in the book of Joshua, remember, that required entire annihilation of the population. And the, and the Lord rejects Saul as king because of his disobedience. And in the very next chapter, we meet the, the massively new important figure, character in the story, David. And we see in the, the narrative that Samuel, the prophet, he's led to Bethlehem in Judah where he knows this new king would come from, one better from Saul, He'll come from Jesse's children. But even Samuel did not think David would be the first choice to be king. And in 1 Samuel 16.7, we see this pretty important statement um, for the rest of the scriptures, really. Um, The Lord says, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. So in contrast to Saul, who was, humanly speaking, the most impressive man, David was not this. He was a a shepherd boy. But the Lord knew David's heart. David being the the youngest son also is extremely counterintuitive for the culture at the time, as, as I think he would have been expected to be the last to be king. So again, you see the reversal of these human expectations and designs. But his, and, and after David is selected anointed king, God's spirit, right, we're told, departs from Saul to David, and Saul then is afflicted by an evil spirit. If you have any questions regarding the activity of the Holy Spirit, you can just listen to last week's sermon, which Pastor Blake addressed this issue, I thought, very well. So I don't have to do it, which is nice. Saves me five minutes. So Saul is still the king in theory, but, but David is now God's chosen man. David is actually the anointed king. And the next scene in the narrative in chapter 17 is the very famous account of David and Goliath. And with the, the big picture in mind, of the whole, the whole Old Testament story, we see that, that David is the first member of the tribe of Judah to be anointed king, and he has arrived on the scene. This is, this is Yahweh's man that, that has been spoken about for a long time now in the Old Testament, this, this from the line of Judah king. And he engages in spiritual and physical warfare against a giant who stands opposed to God and God's purposes. So I think you know where I'm going if you've been here at all. This is a massive showdown between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman playing out in human history. Goliath taunts and and humiliates the Israelites. He mocks God. And when we look at the story, we see that the, the author goes to great lengths to show the, how invincible pretty much Goliath appears, or invulnerable Goliath appears, and how weak David appears. But again, continuing the theme we've seen since Hannah's song, weakness in the eyes of man, not in the eyes of God. Goliath is portrayed as the epitome of spiritual pride and defiance, 
while David is marked by complete trust and faith in Yahweh. And really, the, the physical encounter is quite brief. We all know the story, right? David slays the giant with a small stone, and then he is immediately beheaded by David. And we see that the, the small defeats the large. The, the lowly defeats the proud. And the seed of the woman triumphs over the seed of the enemy. Right? The battle is a, is a representation of the promise in, in Hannah's song of the installation of a messianic king who will destroy the wicked, who will utterly annihilate the wicked and bring justice to the ends of the earth. This is a, an outworking of that. And Dempster argues that now the, from this scene onward, the, the narrative in the Old Testament and the genealogical focus has shifted from, which we've seen, has shifted from Adam to Seth, to, to Shem, to Abraham, to Israel, to Judah, and now it's going to be finally shifted to David. And David is now the focus of kind of this new world genealogy of this offspring of him that will bring justice to the ends of the earth. So Dempster writes of the importance of this. He says, a seed of the woman has arrived, and in David's first action as king, he is a warrior, an anointed one who conquers and be." and beheads a monstrous giant whose speech echoes the voice of the serpent. So I think what, what Dempster is getting at is exactly how we should be reading this story in the context of the, 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 the overall narrative of the Old Testament. David will now obviously become the central figure in the storyline. But it's not all going to be great for David, as we know. David falls from King Saul's favor, who becomes massively jealous, and David must flee, live on the run. He lives as a, as a fugitive, hiding in caves. We get a number of wonderful psalms from this period in David's life. He eventually ends up in exile with the Philistines. Dempster points out there's a great irony, though, because David actually helps the Israelites more from exile than Saul does in his palace in the nation. Which, again, I think shows just the utter failure of Saul. Um, and we see a contrast in the book of, of Samuel between David, right, who, who trusts God. And we see many of his decisions are based on, on hearing God's voice and, and submitting to God's word obeying God's law, while Saul, at the end of his life, can no longer hear the word of God. And Saul ends his life in a, in a move of cowardice that I think is a great summary of his life. Saul is a, one way I saw one uh, commentator put it this, Saul is a, a cowardly man who stood tall above others, but was weak and unfaithful inside. Right? I think it's a good characterization of the character of Saul. And so David finally establishes his reign over Israel. And importantly in the story, the, the geographical focus will now be centered in Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel 5, we see David is able to, to conquer Jerusalem. Again, he's characterized as this mighty warrior 
who, who takes the land of Jerusalem. Dempster calls him the, the preeminent warrior in the Old Testament. I think that's exactly right. And David and his mighty men, who we'll see listed at the end of 2 Samuel, they were finally able to defeat all the enemies in the land. They, they, they essentially finished the job that, that Joshua had started at the beginning of the conquest, all the way when they first entered the, the land of promise. Dempster writes, David as ruler was exercising the dominion and authority given to humanity at the beginning in his various triumphs. He is ruling well. He's ruling as he should um, in obedience to Yahweh. The key point for us is, is God's anointed king is ruling as he should. And we see this not just from his, his mighty military actions and, and destruction of his enemies, which is important in the storyline, but also that he, he's a supremely devoted to God. He's supremely devoted to God. He, he established Jerusalem as a political and military capital for the nation. And he desires to make it a religious center for the nation as well. His first act after capturing the city is, is retrieving the Ark of the Covenant, which had been lost to the Philistines somehow. It's the last place it needs to be, but it was lost to the Philistines under Saul. And so David retrieves it back to him and brings it to its rightful place. And so this leads up to, in the book of Samuel, what is commonly known as the, the succession narrative, which is different people put it at different places. For our study, we're going to say that this is 2 Kings chapter 6 through 20, the succession narrative. <coughs> Excuse me. And we come to then one of the most important verses or chapters in the entire Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, where we see the formation of the Davidic covenant. Which the Davidic covenant not only makes promises about the reign of the coming Christ, which are massively important in his kingdom, but also brings together the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, um, which is important as we put together the structure of our Old Testaments. Also, of course, the themes of geography and genealogy is what Dempster argues they're, they're pretty much settled in this chapter for the rest of the Old Testament. Those two themes are settled. It's going to be Jerusalem will be the geographical center from here out, and David's line will be the line of dynasty. Dempster writes, from this one location in worship geography, I mean, from this one location in world geography, Jerusalem, in this one person in world genealogy, David, will flow blessing to the entire world and its inhabitants. So it, it, okay, this is just massively important um, chapter in the overall narrative of the Old Testament and really the whole canon of Scripture. Um, and these twin themes, genealogy, geography, they're, they're, they're weaved together brilliantly by the use of the word house in this chapter. It's the Hebrew word bait. English word is house. And it functions as a dual meaning. So on the one hand, it means a building. 
in a specific location. And on the other hand, it can mean that like house is in the sense of a dynasty. So the, the, the house of David. And the chapter begins with this theme of house. Of David's just finished building himself a house, a, a, a palace to live in. And he's struck that the, the, the human king has this comfortable abode while the divine king Yahweh lives in a portable tent still. And he sees there's, there's something off here. And so David is determined to, to do something about the situation. And he resolves, he resolves to build a house to build a temple for the Lord. So he informs Nathan the prophet, his friend, of his intention. And at first Nathan commends this decision. But he receives a word from the Lord that, that David will actually not build a house for the Lord. But his son will, his seed will. And in return, or not in return, but actually Yahweh will build a house for David. So notice the meaning here. I think Yahweh will build a royal house. I think we should view that term as, as a dynasty for David. So we see that, that this Davidic covenant, as the, the other covenants we've seen, establishes a relationship between God and David where David is a, a son to God and, and God is David's father. And in verse 9, we see clear further development of the, of the covenant with Abraham as David is promised a great name. And there's, there's echoes of, of universal blessing, which we see represented in the rest of the Old Testament, especially in the prophetic literature. So in this chapter, there's also a stress on, on, descend, on descendants and lineage with an emphasis on a future hope and a descendant of David whose kingdom and throne will endure forever. It's a wonderful, wonderful promise, right? We know it's fulfilled in Christ and in, in Jesus. But very quickly, after this covenant with Yahweh, everything seems to be going amazing with David and the nation, right? They've... they've, they've they finally defeated the enemies. They've, they've got the Ark of the Covenant. They're, they have Jerusalem. Things seem to be going great. And of course, David engages in a heinous sin that will put this dynastic promise in peril. So we see entered into the story, as we've seen in all of these stories, deep conflict. David commits adultery with Bathsheba and has a child with her. Bathsheba's husband was a loyal soldier in David's army and he, he orders him to be killed to cover up Bathsheba's pregnancy. David then marries Bathsheba and the child is born and David is confronted with his sin in, in 2 Samuel 12. So David, right, we know a few things. David genuinely repents of his sin. We know this and we see this in Psalm 51. But judgment in the narrative, judgment still falls on his house, his dynasty, right? His child still dies. And we see that, that Bathsheba has another child with David named Solomon, who the Lord gives another, another name. I've always liked this name, Jedediah, um, meaning Yahweh loved him. Yahweh loved him, which I think tells us that this son 
has divine favor upon him. There is something different about this son. Solomon is the the last born child to David and was the result of uh, a pretty heinous sin of adultery. So I think from human expectations again, he might be the least likely candidate for the succession of the kingship. But, right, knowing the theme we've already seen in Samuel, of the kind of the Lord's counterintuitive expectations in his plan in history and actions, we shouldn't be surprised that this is the son that will succeed David in the line. So the, I'm going to go super fast forward here. So the next chapters of Samuel detail the, the elimination of other royal sons of David, Amnon and Absalom. And the book ends with, with a song from David and his last words that we've already kind of went through here at the beginning of our lesson. So we're not going to spend a ton of time here. Um, and as we saw that in this song and speech that David looks to a future assured hope and in his seed, one that will sprout up and conquer all his enemies. We see that language of sprout up. It's going to be very um, prominent theme in the latter prophets, the, a sprout or a root of Jesse. There's going to be different types of language of this, of this sprout from Jesse's line or from David's line. Um, so in that sense, these, these final words from David are, are kind of the paradigm for how the, la- the latter prophets describe a Messiah will come in the future. So a lot to explore in Samuel. It's a wonderful book. But I think we got kind of the big picture gist. Um, but any questions or comments before we move on to Kings, which is going to continue the same story, which is awesome. That's right, yeah. That is a neat connection. I don't know if you've heard it. Um, but Dempster points out the connection between, you're going to have to help me out here, Dagon, that's what. The, the pagan god that the Philistines worshipped, his head comes off in the statue, right? Um, just as Goliath's head when David destroyed him, right? David, emphasizing that David and his mighty men were faithful to defeat the pagan armies, which they should have done a long time ago, but... It's in contrast <coughs> to the idea that... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have I have not thought about that in particularly, um, but it seems that is interesting, and probably there might be something there to explore. Yeah, to everything else, his big height. Yeah, yeah, could be. He's so impressive physically and his physical gifts that even his bad lineage. Did not sway. That could be it. So the book of Kings continues the the same story as the book of Samuel and continues with the same theme of succession to the throne of David, which was kind of what made up the end of 2 Samuel. And Kings really begins with a very positive note, or on a very positive note. Um, We see that Solomon... 
Bathsheba's son is, is going to be David's successor. Again, highlights God's unique plan of usurping human expectations. Dempster argues to say that, that Solomon is, this is pretty obvious, he's an unlikely candidate to succeed the line. And that, that would be quite the understatement, right? We know where, where and how he came to be. And we see that this new king, Solomon in 1, king 3, 1 Kings 3, has extraordinary wisdom. Just extraordinary wisdom. We see him solve social problems and, and promote justice and righteousness in his, in his kingdom. And it's important to recognize that this wisdom was a gift from God to Solomon as a result of his prayer in chapter 3, where he asked the Lord specifically for wisdom to, to lead and govern well in the sight of the Lord. And so we see a very positive moment, I think, in Israel's history. They are being led by a wise king who is, for the time, ruling in line with the law of God. And his dominion is described in, in very positive language. All Israel and Judah lived securely. And, and we can see in 1 Kings 4.24, there was peace in all the nations. So this is pretty unusual, right? If we're following the story, this is a pretty unusual time for Israel um, of peace and justice. But Dempster points out that, that this time epitomizes the, the national security and prosperity similar to that predicted for the Messianic ruler's reign in places like we've seen in Genesis 49. But, but as we'll soon see, all does not turn out well. So at best, we could say Solomon's rule is a partial fulfillment of the promises of kind of a, a, an Edenic-like dominion, a paradise-like dominion given earlier in the Old Testament. But it is not the full fulfillment, right? But this genealogical hope that, that we find in Solomon is also accompanied with, with geographical hope. Because we see Solomon complete the desire of his father of building a permanent house for God to dwell in, right? The temple. And just like Exodus, if you remember back to Exodus, with, with it detailed, or it had detailed instructions regarding the tabernacle, in Kings we get more intricate details of the temple. And there's it's pretty interesting, but there's, there's just a lot of linguistic similarities to this section in Kings with, with the, the tabernacle section in Exodus. Which, I don't, it shouldn't surprise us because the, the temple is where the presence of God will dwell in a special particular way, right, in this Old Covenant period, just like the tabernacle before it. And Dempster points out that we see in places like 1 Kings 8.43 and chapter 8, verse 69, that the temple was to be a means of blessing, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the entire world, which should, I think it should be expected if we think back to the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12, a, a blessing to all nations. And so after the temple is fully built, Solomon gives a, a prayer of dedication of the temple to, to Yahweh. And in this prayer, we see a lot of echoes back to, to Deuteronomy and, and, and Joshua's final speech 
that we've found in Joshua, and that Solomon recognized that sin, in effect, is, is natural to every single Israelite, or I think every single person. So 1 Kings 8.46 says, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. For there is no one who does not sin. So again, another pointer that we see that there, that there's even amongst this prosperity and the, the good governing and wisdom of Solomon, there is still something wrong at the most fundamental level with all humanity. There is no one who does not sin still. So I think this is this pointing, this is pointing for us to the need for one in the future who is sinless. One who, who does not sin. And in the narrative, no, no sooner is the temple built and, and Israel has been in this great season of peace and prosperity under the leadership of this great Davidic king that Solomon will encounter a massive problem. And the problem is, of course, himself. Because he is one who does sin against God. And he's guilty, right? We know he's guilty of polygamy and marrying many, many foreign women who lead his heart astray to abandon Yahweh as king. They turn his heart away from God. And this failure of Solomon has just absolutely devastating effects for the people of God. The judgment that follows this grave sin and, and Solomon's death is that the kingdom of Israel is then split. They're split Right, with the tribe of Judah in the south and the other tribes to the north. The promised land has begun to, to fragment because of the failure of a promised seed. And what we see in the, in the rest of the book of Kings is really just a massive spiral downward further and further into idolatry and abandonment of Yahweh by the leadership of the nation, by the kings of the nation. Jeroboam, um, one of Solomon's official, he, he rebels against Solomon. He sets up golden calves at Bethel and Dan, which function as the, the northern kingdom's places of worship so that, that they would not go to this newly constructed temple. right? They would, they would go to these false places of worship. Golden calves, we've seen those before, right? Were they good guys? No, that was bad. It was not good for Israel then. It is not good for Israel now. Dempster writes, Just as the golden calf spelled disaster for Israel at Sinai, so the calves eventually lead to disaster for the northern kingdom. So Jeroboam is a, a wicked leader who becomes the kind of the negative standard by which all the succeeding kings in the northern kingdom would be measured. So in chapter 13, of First King, uh, an anonymous prophet, a man of God is sent to Jeroboam. This guy is really awesome. I like this guy. He enters the temple during essentially a worship service at this new, fake, wicked temple, and he destroys the altar um, from this wicked temple that Jeroboam made, and he predicts the kind of the desecration of the bones of of Jeroboam's heretical priesthood that he established 
right? He's basically just laying waste to all of this false worship to Yahweh that Jeroboam has instituted. And this man of God, who I wish, I really wish we had his name recorded. It'd be a sweet name to name your son. Um, But he predicts the birth of a Davidic king from the tribe of Judah who will restore true worship by eliminating these false places of worship. And that king's name will be Josiah, who we meet 300 years after this event, 300 years later. And when Josiah appears, he does destroy idol worship. He, he does burn the altars. He brings them to dust, which I think is a, should point us back to what Moses did to the golden calves, right? By bringing them to dust and making the people drink um, the calf water. So Josiah, Josiah does do that. Um, but Dem- Dempster argues that the, the rest of the book of Kings, again, details the reckless plunge into disaster for not just the northern kingdom, but also the south as well. He states that if, if Israel had become like Sodom at the end of the period of Judges, it becomes canonized under Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings 16. They go head first into, into rank idolatry with the Canaanite pagan gods. But we do find notes, and Dempster points this out, of, of God's electing grace and his persevering um, of a faithful remnant. And we see this mostly in the stories with Elijah and Elisha, that they and other faithful prophets survive intense persecution as, as they're faithful, they, they call out the idolatrous sins of the Israelite nation. And Elijah, right, remember this story, he decisively proves the identity of the true God, Yahweh, in his epic showdown with the pagan worshipers at, at Mount Carmel. You remember this story in 1 Kings 18. Um, but after that showdown, Elijah laments the people of Israel's defection to worship Baal, while he alone is faithful to the covenant. So he's in this deep moment of despair and darkness. You can see this pretty clearly in 1 Kings 19.10. And God reveals himself to Elijah while he's in this, this moment of despair and isolation. And, and Dempster points out that in this kind of revelation, there's a lot of points of connection and correlation with Moses meeting the Lord um, at the top of Sinai in Exodus 34. And so in this, in this depressed state, the Lord reveals to Elijah that he is not alone, right? He, he is not the only one who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal, but there were 7,000 Israelites that haven't given in to idolatry and are worshiping the Lord. The, Dempster says the point of this passage is so that we see that the, the principle of election guarantees the survival of the people and of the divine promise. So even with all of this massive idolatry going on, this rank sin from the leadership of the Israelites, God did elect a remnant to be faithful. But as we read on in the narrative, the, the history for the northern kingdom is, is sure. God's divine judgment lays waste to the northern kingdom, and they face the, the Deuteron- Deuteronomic curses, right? All of the curses we saw for 
um, apostasy and unfaithfulness to Yahweh and his law. And we see a brief reform in the, in the reign of King Jehu, but it's brief and I would kind of view it as kind of a stopgap for what is coming, which occurs in 2 Kings 17. They're, they're put under siege and exiled because of their repeated failure to keep the law of God. Now for the southern kingdom, the same blow of defeat and exile is delayed for a century. According to Dimster, and this is important to note. We see in the book of Kings, we, we see pretty clearly that the southern kingdom is also guilty of idolatry. But as opposed to, to Jeroboam, who's kind of the negative measuring stick of all the future kings of the northern kingdom, it is David who's the positive measuring stick of the faithfulness of the southern kingdom kings. And when we initially see the divide of the kingdom in 1 Kings 11, hope is held out to the southern kingdom because of David. So you can see that, if you want evidence, you can see that chapter 1 Kings eleven thirty eight. The line of Judah is still the promised line, which is very important as we recall all the mentions and all the promises to Judah's line that we've seen throughout the Old Testament so far. And so we can see some contrast then between the northern and southern kingdom. Dempster points out that there are 20 northern kings in about 200 years and 21 kings in the south in a period of almost 400 years. So pretty much the same amount of kings and double the amount of time for the south, which I think indicates more stability in the south. Um, but more importantly, there are 10 dynastic changes in the north. So 10 changes of line of, uh, oh man, I've lost my words, dynastic kingship from one family to another, and there is none in the south. It's very important. The kingship always resides in the line of David, even amongst their unfaithfulness. And the name David and the promises given to David function to what Dempster calls as a lamp in the darkness in the book of Kings, in the narrative of Kings. David and the promise to David's seed is key to God's mercy. God's covenant with David, which is an extension of God's covenant with Abraham, is key to God's mercy he shows to the south. But there is major conflict and idolatry in the south. And we see this in, in 2 Kings 11 with the story of Athaliah, Ahab's daughter, who, who seizes control, tries to, to eliminate the line of David. And she's almost very nearly successful. Um, but we are going to have to leave this on a cliffhanger, and you can come back next week so we can see the end of this story um, and see if the line of David is preserved, which we do know that it is. <laughs> um, so any final questions or comments as we've run out of time? We almost got through to Kings, but that's good. No? All right, well, thank you all so much for coming and participating. We will see you next week. You are dismissed.